This is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov. Welcome to Focus on God's Word. We are here today beginning a brand new series focusing on the incredible true story of Noah, found in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Our series title is Noah, Another Storm is Coming. And today's message is Finding God's Grace. Lockdown, that word we are all well familiar with, aren't we? The word lockdown, especially in the last little while, ever since COVID-19 came to town or came to our world from that city of Wuhan there in central China, spread throughout the world. And ever since then, we have come to terms and become well familiar with that word lockdown. Well, today we want to begin by going to the first ever lockdown. The first family to experience lockdown some four and a half thousand years ago. The family of Noah and the things that we can learn. As I've been unpacking these four chapters in the book of Genesis, I have discovered some incredible things that I would just love to share with you. It's an incredible story that teaches us about the coming of Jesus and how we can be ready for the coming of Jesus. Speaking of the coming of Jesus, toward the end of his ministry... Jesus, just before his crucifixion, was on the Mount of Olives. And I've had the opportunity of going to ancient Jerusalem. And um, I have a a photo there that I took whilst um, standing on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And there is that famous Dome of the Rock um, on the Temple Mount, one of the most sacred sites in Islam, where the Temple of Jerusalem once stood. And Jesus there, as he looked out at the Temple He gave an incredible prophecy, signs that would date, predate his his return, as well as signs before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus gave a number of signs there in Matthew 24, Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13. Uh, Apart from the greatest of all the signs, which is the gospel going to all the world, the greatest sign that we are on the eve of the coming of Jesus that he gave was the sign of Noah and the days of Noah. So together, we're going to unpack and explore this incredible subject because I believe it is extremely relevant, extremely challenging and extremely encouraging to all those that are living on the eve of Christ's second coming. So before we open up God's word and before we open up to the words of Jesus and discover how important this message is, we're going to pause and we're going to pray. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we're about to open up your holy word and we ask and pray that as we open up your word, that you will open up our hearts and our minds so that we may be able to understand how important this subject indeed is for those of us that are living on the very edge of eternity, the very eve of your soon return. So bless us as we open your word, open our hearts and our minds and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen and amen. Well, we're going to go to the words of Jesus as they are found in Matthew chapter 24. So I'm going to be opening in my Bible to Matthew 24. The words will be up on the screen for you uh, to follow along. Matthew 24 and toward the end of Jesus message on the signs of his coming, he shares these words. And I'm beginning in verse 36, Matthew 24 and verse 36. 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus here is speaking of his second coming. He goes on. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus here makes it very clear that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be before he returns. He goes on and he gives some more important information. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Watch therefore, says Jesus, as he concludes, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be what? Be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So here Jesus makes it crystal clear that we need to be ready. Life will be going on as normal just before Jesus comes. Jesus here is describing life as as normal. And so he says, watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. I want to repeat the all important truth apart From the gospel going to all the world, the most important sign that Jesus gave that would help us understand when his coming was near, even at the doors, even though we cannot know the day or the hour, but when his coming was near, even at the doors, that sign is the sign of Noah. Now, in the book of Luke, Jesus adds to the sign of Noah by giving us another sign, another another very similar sign. And we go to the book of Luke and in Luke chapter 17, Luke there records the words of Jesus. But he adds a detail that Matthew omits. And I'm beginning in verse 26, Luke 17 and verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also. In the days before the Son of Man, verse 27, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the Lord came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. So here Jesus adds the experience and the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus here is crystal clear. Make no mistake. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be just before he comes. So the question you and I need to ask is, are we indeed living in the time of Noah, in the time of Lot? In this series, we're going to be focusing mainly on the days of Noah. However, based on the words of Christ, we will also be taking a look at some of those connecting points from the days of Lot. Because these two stories have so many, uh, so many similar uh, instances and so many similar um, examples of what it was like in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. So what must I do to be ready? Another storm is coming indeed. 
Well, to begin with, we want to take a look at three key points that I have discovered as I've been going through the story of Noah and Lot. And here are the three all important points. Firstly, the story of Noah clearly identifies Earth's final generation. Secondly, it enables us to know and understand how we can be ready when the Son of Man returns. And thirdly, it provides instruction on how we can prepare others for Jesus' soon return. These are three key points, and we're going to be unpacking these over the next six messages together from the story of Noah. These four chapters in Genesis, from Genesis 6 to Genesis chapter 9, are filled with everything that you and I need to know about the times that we are living in, and more importantly, how we can prepare ourselves as well as others for the soon return of Jesus. So let's go to the story of Noah. We're going to go to the book of Genesis, to the book of beginnings, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, where the story begins. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Here is a huge clue, a huge titanic clue that helps us to know right from the get-go that we are indeed living in the days of Noah. The Bible says that there was a multiplication of the human race on the face of the earth during the time of Noah. I looked up that word multiply and the word word multiply, um, the Hebrew word in Strong's Concordance is defined as to multiply by the myriad. Now, I scratched my head, as some of you may be scratching your head, what does that word myriad mean? And so I looked up that word in the dictionary and noticed the dictionary.com definition of myriad. A countless or extremely great number of people or things. Now, does that describe our world today? Is our world exploding when it comes to its population? Indeed it is. Have a look at this graph. Here we have the world's population over the last 1,000 years. And you can see it, it was only up until about 200 years ago that we finally reached 1 billion people from the time of the flood. We don't exactly know how many people were around at the time of the flood, but we certainly know that from the flood to up until 200 years ago, it took us all that time to get to 1 billion people. And then have a look at the chart. It's just going, it's just going up exponentially. And we're almost up to 8 billion people. So right from the very beginning, God says, there will be a population explosion just before I return again. Now, not only was there a population explosion, not only did the people multiply, but in Noah's day, God blessed the people. That antediluvian race, as it's became known, were blessed by God in ways that you and I cannot imagine. They almost lived for a thousand years. Their intellect was beyond what we can imagine. They had health and strength that, once again, we, we cannot imagine. Um, they had the blessings and the resources 
sacrifice that God provided here on this earth that was almost perfect. It was almost perfect. Yes, sin had invaded this world ever since Adam and Eve sinned. But, but this world was, was in such a beautiful state. It had never rained. Instead, there was a beautiful mist that came up that watered the earth. And this world was filled with great blessings. I just want to go to... Uh, a classic on, on the story on Noah. It's the book Patriarchs and Prophets uh, written by the Christian, the inspired Christian author Ellen White more than a century ago. And she gives us some insight as to, as to the kind of world that existed before the flood. Notice these words. She writes, There were evident tokens of decay, but the earth was still rich and beautiful in the gifts of God's providence. The hills were crowned with majestic trees supporting the fruit-laden branches of the vine. The vast garden-like plains were clothed with verdure and sweet with the fragrance of a thousand flowers. The fruits of the earth were in great variety and almost without limit. The trees far surpassed in size, beauty and perfect proportion any now to be found. Their wood, notice these words, their wood was of fine grain and hard, and hard substance closely resembling that of stone and hardly less enduring. Gold, silver and precious stones existed in abundance. The human race yet retained much of its early vigor. Had that long-lived people with their rare powers to plan and execute devoted themselves to the service of God, they would have made their creator's name a praise in the earth and would have answered the purpose for which he gave them life. But sadly, they failed to do this. So here we have a description of what life was like before the flood. God poured out his blessings. But sadly, the more God poured out his blessings, the more his people created in him, his image turned away from him. I can't help but think of, 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 of the world that I live in, our Western world compared to the third world. The Western world has no time for God and the things of God's kingdom. And yet those who are poor in the things of this world seem to have more time for the things of God and his kingdom. Let's continue reading. Let's continue reading the story. Back to Genesis chapter 6 and we'll begin in verse 1 once again. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now the Bible here says that at this time the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they had children. Now, there are many who mistakenly believe that the sons of God reference here is to angels, that, that fallen angels somehow came together and they formed unions with, 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 with human beings and that through that they, they had children. That's not what the Bible here is teaching at all. The sons of God here is simply a reference to those that chose to be faithful to God. The daughters of men is a reference to the opposite. Those who chose not to be faithful to God. Throughout scripture, God is dealing with opposites. You can go through the entire scriptures and you're dealing with opposites. Truth and error, light and darkness. The book of Revelation is a classic example of that. How, so how do we know what? This reference is in regards to the sons of God and the daughters of men. 
It's actually quite simple. All you need to do is you need to go back to the previous two chapters, chapter chapter 4 and chapter 5. And in chapter 4 there we have Adam and Eve who have two sons. And what were their names? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. And sadly, that was the first murder on this planet. But to replace Abel, God provided another son for Adam and Eve, and they named him Seth. And so in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, you have the lines of Cain. Firstly, the line of Cain is described. Then you have the line of Seth. The line of Cain is the reference to the daughters of man. The line of Seth is the reference to the sons of God. In fact, that, that term sons of God appears throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in relation to God's children, sometimes children of God is used in that way. When we take a look at these two different lines, we discover that there are very clear differences between the two lines. If we take a look at Cain's line, let's firstly go to Cain's line. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16, we read these words regarding Cain. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Well, before we go any further, the, the reference here to Cain, by the way, Cain, do you know what his name means? His name means one who has been given to me by the Lord. You know, the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided. You can read about that. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where after Eve bore Cain, she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. In fact, the original is, I have acquired a, a man, the Lord, the Lord. Eve believed, according to the name of Cain that she gave to her firstborn son, that he was to be the promised Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Lord. And so that's how she named him. But that was to be... Sadly, the greatest disappointment of her life. And it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He left the presence of the Lord. And he went and dwelt in the land of Nod. That word Nod means wandering. And it really is the message. When we leave the presence of the Lord, we go what? Wandering. We go wandering. And that's exactly what happened with Cain. The Bible goes on in verse 17. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So Cain has a son. He calls him Enoch and he builds a city and he names the city after his son. In opposition to what God said, which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, spread out over all the earth. Also in Cain's line, we discover that they were involved in polygamy against God's original plan. In Genesis 6.2, in fact, it says, as we read earlier, uh, that the daughters of man saw that the 
sorry, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. Polygamy. God's plan was one man and one woman. If God wanted Eve to have more than one, sorry, if God wanted Adam to have more than one wife, he would have taken two ribs out. Isn't that right? <laughs> Rather than one rib. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, as part of Cain's line, we find an individual called Lamech. And this is what it says. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. This is fascinating. Not only that, we have polygamy here for the first time in Scripture, in Cain's line, which was against God's plan. But we have two women named. In fact, there's another woman that's named in Cain's line. You won't find any women named in the line of Seth. Now, that's very significant, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But we also discover this individual Lamech. He was someone who was, he was, he was someone who is described as violent, revengeful, boastful, and a law unto himself. Jesus says that they married wives. If you read about that in Luke 17, 27. So let's take a look at the line of Seth, the line of Seth. Well, before we do the line of Seth, I do need to add one more point. When you take a look at the line of Cain, you discover that in the line of Cain there, uh, the focus is on the here and now and the temporary. Uh, there is a city that is built. Okay, there's, there, there's also animal husbandry. Nothing wrong with that, but the focus is on the here and now. There is musical instruments. There's, there's metal work. And, um, and there's, there's the things of the here and now. We'll discover that in the line of Seth, it is very different. So let's go to the line of Seth in Genesis chapter 4 and verses 25 and 26. And notice the, the significant difference here. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So that's what the word Seth means. God has appointed another seed. Verse 26. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Wow. So we have Cain described as he, his first son is named after a city that he builds for himself. It reminds us of the Tower of Babel and the builders who wanted to make a name for themselves. Whereas Seth here, he has a son called Enosh. And I looked up that word and the word Enosh means frail and mortal man. Frail and mortal man. So we have, we have the message of dependence upon God. Frailty. Enoch. Enosh. We also discover here that the people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Seth's line are calling on the name of the Lord. In Scripture, to call on the name of the Lord is often associated with, with a sacrifice to the Lord. It's associated with building an altar to the Lord. So what is the focus? The focus is on God and the things of God, not the temporary things of the here and now, as in the line of Cain, but the things of God. And as you go through the genealogy of, of Seth, you discover it begins with Adam 
in the following verses and the image of God is coming through, the image of one man and one woman and marriage and the family is coming through. And there are two individuals that have descriptions associated with them. One is Enoch, who walked with the Lord. And the other one is Noah, who the Lord brought into this world as a comfort. And we'll look at that later on. So we have these two very different lines. So what was it that brought about the downfall of the sons of God and the descendants of Seth? Chapter 6, verse 2. Notice what it says. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. They entered into polygamous marriages and relationships and they, they were caught up in the beauty of the daughters of men. That word there, beauty, is the same word that is used to describe Eve when she sees the tree that God said, don't eat from this tree, but it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the same word there that is used. It's interesting that the three women in Cain's line, they all, their names are descriptors of outward beauty. All three of those women, I don't have time to unpack that right now, but all three women, their names are descriptors of beauty, outward beauty. So what's taking place here? God is watching the ultimate crisis unfold before his very eyes. And what's the ultimate crisis? The ultimate crisis is these two lines that were to remain separate. The sons of God that were to remain separate and faithful to God are now mixing and mingling with the daughters of men. They are intermarrying and, and, and God's royal line through whom he would bring forth the promised Messiah is about to get snuffed out. And God literally waits to the very last moment where there is one man, his name is Noah, and his family that he has influenced to be faithful to God that are left on planet Earth. Yes, there were others who lived before the flood that were also faithful to God and they died before the flood. But we're looking at a fraction of the world's population that are faithful to God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, we keep reading. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. The final straw, the final straw was the mixing of truth and error, the mingling of light and darkness, the sons of God and the daughters of men coming together. Compromise was about to destroy the promised Messiah. And so God had to intervene. God had to intervene. In fact, Noah preached, as we have just read, for 120 years from 2418 BC to 2298 BC. Let's keep reading. In verse 4, in verse 4. Of Genesis chapter 6, there were giants on the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, there we have a repetition. 
every time you find a repetition in Scripture, it's for emphasis. It's for emphasis. God is saying that this brought about the flood. The final straw was when God's people mixed and mingled and took on board the principles and the kingdom principles of this world found in the people of this world or the daughters of men. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, what does it mean by giants? I looked up that word giants and the word literally means extraordinary ones, mighty ones or ones that have fallen. Ones that have fallen. So here we have the Bible describing what is taking place immediately before the flood and what were the consequences This is so important. Don't miss this. What are the consequences when light and darkness come together? What are the consequences when we sit on the fence? What are the consequences when when those who are hot mix together with those who are cold and they end up lukewarm? What are the consequences? And I'm quoting Revelation chapter 3 and the message to Laodicea. Notice what the consequences are. We read in verses 5 and onwards. Here we go. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. What? Continually. We keep reading. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man from I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. Some of the most some of the most sad words that you will ever read in all the scripture where God is grieved and he is sorry that 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 he created man. This is man that he created in his own image, according to his own likeness. We keep reading. And in verse 11, the sad consequences of mixing truth and error, of commingling light with darkness. Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with what? With violence. Verse 12. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here we have what God sees. Just over 1,500 years from when God created this perfect world, we have this world in a place where where there is evil, wickedness, violence and corruption right across this world, except for a handful of people. The human race has chosen, has chosen to turn their backs on God, to walk away from the presence of God, to wander On an earth called Nod. 
And that is the sad and sorry situation of planet Earth that brought about the flood. And God's only solution to this cancer was to destroy this world and to save those who are willing to be saved. I think back to my own experience of the malignant melanoma that was diagnosed in my right shoulder back in 2007. So that's many moons ago. And I remember what I had to face. This cancer had to be taken out completely, roots and all, in order for my life potentially to be preserved. If it hadn't spread, and thank God it hadn't spread. We all know what cancer does. We've all experienced cancer. I have experienced it on more than one occasion. It's taken my precious mother's life much too soon. I know cancer firsthand. We know that with cancer, unless it is completely eradicated, it will ultimately destroy the entire person and separate loved ones and bring great heartache and pain and grief. And that's exactly what God's heart was experiencing, grief, heartache, pain, grief. God was sorry. He was grieved. But was the seed of God completely extinguished? Have a look at what verse 8 says of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. We read these words. But Noah found what? Grace. Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a powerful word, grace. A powerful word. Notice what the word means, grace. It means to receive kindness and favor, acceptance, something pleasant or precious, something we don't deserve. That's what grace is. As someone put it, grace, you, you, you could use it as an acronym, God's reward at Christ's expense. That's grace. That's grace. Notice it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It mentions the eyes of the Lord. That's a significant phrase because that phrase appears over and over again in Scripture associated with God's grace. I'm going to take you to uh, another situation where God's grace was lavishly poured out upon his rebellious and stiff necked people. At the foot of Mount Sinai, after God had given his covenant of love to his people, his chosen ambassadors to the world to share the gospel to, whole, to the whole world, Israel. Uh, whilst Moses is up on Mount Sinai collecting the Ten Commandments written by God's very own finger from two tablets of stone from God's very own throne room. The people down below have broken the covenant. They've smashed the covenant. They've destroyed the covenant by, by erecting a golden calf. And so Moses goes and he pleads, pleads with God and he goes to God's soft spot. And you know what God's soft spot is? It's grace. It's grace. And notice what we read 
We read Moses' interaction with God and we read these words in Exodus chapter 33. Follow along with me. Exodus chapter 33 verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found what? Grace in my sight. Notice how many times this phrase appears in the next few verses. We keep reading. Verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find what? Grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. By the way, the, the, the name Noah means rest. It means rest. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. What did we read earlier about Cain? Cain walked away from the presence of God. And Moses is saying that unless your presence is with us, we are not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We need your presence. We keep reading. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And then verse 17, we read. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for. You have found what? Grace in my sight. And I know you by what? I know you by name and name in the Bible is more than just a name. Name in the Bible represents character. It represents what? Character. And God says to Moses, you love your people. You have my character because I love this stiff necked, rebellious people. And yes, I will provide my grace. They too will find grace in my sight. What does the Bible say about Noah? Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Noah not only found grace, Noah was a man of grace. Notice what it says about Noah in Genesis 6 verse 9. It says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. That word there, just, can also be translated righteous. Righteous. In fact, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, that's exactly how that word is translated. Notice Genesis 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are what? Righteous before me in this generation. Noah was a man of righteousness who preached a message of grace based on the righteousness of God. Notice what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Hebrews 11 verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, when he, sorry, by faith Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. It was a message of righteousness by faith. Make no mistake about that. Noah preached a message of righteousness by faith based on God's grace. 
And this is the message that God has for the final end time generation that will live on the eve of Jesus' second coming. So you and I, my friends, those of you who are watching, you and I, we have, we have been blessed by God to receive His grace. We have been blessed by God to share His grace with those around us. The greatest privilege in the entire universe has been entrusted to this sin-sick fallen planet and its inhabitants to share the message of grace that they have received from God through His incredible grace. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we read these words. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Those who are saved by God's grace, those who experience the righteousness of God will share that message far and wide. That is why Noah invested his entire life. He invested his entire resources in the salvation of souls. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read these words. The Apostle Paul here unpacks the gospel of Christ. And he uses these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And notice what the gospel of Christ is. For in it, that is in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what is the gospel of Christ? The Apostle Paul tells us he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the righteousness of God that is revealed by faith. And Noah was a man of faith, a man of faith. And in the context of the story of Noah, Peter makes an appeal to those that will be living, especially at the end of time. And notice the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The context is the second coming and the days of Noah. And we're going to look at that on another occasion. But notice this verse in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what's God's plan for you and I? It's to receive what? God's grace and to share it with those around us. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the question is, how can I receive God's grace? How can I receive God's grace? How can I find God's grace? It's there. How can I? Genesis 6, 9, back to the story of Noah. It says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah did what? He walked with God. He walked with God. That's the focus that I want to focus in on right now. He walked with God. There is one other individual in the line of Seth that you read about in Genesis chapter 5 that also walked with God. And it's mentioned not once, but twice. And his name was what? Enoch. 
Enoch walked with God. There are others like Abraham that walked with God and others in scriptures. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to be faithful to God. It means to honor God. It means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, as Jesus put it. To walk with God means that you make a a decision that you want to live your life in harmony with the principles of God's kingdom. And you will turn your back on the principles of this world, this fallen world that is coming to destruction. Another storm is coming. Another storm is coming. Jesus told us that. The whole of Scripture tells us that. The only way to be ready for the storm that is on the horizon, and I believe that it will be here sooner than we think, is to fully put our faith and trust in God. There is no other way. There is no other way. Noah put his full faith and trust in the word of God. It says in Genesis 6 verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did in Genesis 7, 5, it repeats. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. God said, build a boat. And God told Noah how to build this boat. 450 feet long, some 75 feet wide, some 45 feet high, three stories, one door in the side. You know, cover it with pitch. Outside and inside, make it of gopher wood. Ensure that there, are, there is one pair of every unclean animal and there are seven pairs of every clean animal. You can all read that in the story. And Noah did according to everything that God said. He followed God in every aspect. He was faithful to God. So the question is, will God have a people just like Noah at the end of time? Will God have a people just like Noah who are saved by grace and choose by the power of God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit to live their lives wholly consecrated to God and to do everything that God invites them to do? Not to be saved, but because they have been saved by grace, which always precedes whatever God asks you to do. Don't ever forget that. Will God have such a people? If we go to the book of Revelation, the answer is there. God describes his end time people. Revelation 14 verses 4 and 5. Notice these words. These are the ones speaking of God's end time people. Those who are faithful to God at the end of time. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who do what? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They walk with God. They walk with Christ. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 5. And in their mouth was found what? No No deceit or no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Well, if we had time, I would love to, I'd love to park myself right here and unpack these words. In fact, we could spend a whole hour or two just on these words, comparing them to Noah, who is described in exactly the same way as a man who was just, a man who was righteous, a man who was perfect or blameless, or one who was filled with integrity. That's what that word literally means, perfect, blameless, filled with integrity, and a man who walked with God, a man who followed God and His ways. Jesus asked this 
question for those who would be living at the end of time. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will Jesus really find faith on the earth when he comes? It's going to be like the days of Noah. Were there many faithful in the days of Noah before the flood? How many? Eight people. That's all, eight people. And so Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be before I come. So, so the question, when I come, will there be any faith, real faith on the earth? That's a, that's a real question, isn't it? Will God have a faithful people at the end, even though they will be in the minority? Yes, he will. Notice the answer from Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the answer to Jesus' question. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Yes, God will have a people on planet Earth at the end of time, just like Noah, who are faithful to God no matter what anyone says. They don't care what the world says. All they care is what God says and what God's word says. Faithful to God no matter what. Though the heavens fall, as one author said. True to the needle as to the pole or something along those lines. <laughs> but faithful to God. God will have a people like that. In fact, in Revelation 22 verse 11, we have here in the final chapter of the book of Revelation, two groups at the end of time. And here they are described as they were in the days of Noah. Revelation 22 verse 11. God says at the end of time, when all is said and done, when everyone's made their decision, God says from his throne room, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. God is looking for a faithful people today. He's inviting you, my dear friend, from wherever you are watching, to be faithful to Him. Are you willing to take on board the challenge? Are you willing to take on board this wonderful privilege? There is no greater privilege than to be an ambassador of God at the end of time, sharing God's grace to a sin-sick, lost planet, inviting people to come into the ark, God's salvation. And by the way, by the way, the word ark, the word ark only appears twice in all of Scripture. Once here in the story of Noah and the second time to describe that basket, as we refer to it, that Moses was placed in and protected by God. That was a, an ark in the original language. Protection, love from God. So as we seek to land, let's summarize Noah walked with God, lived and preached the message of righteousness by faith. Noah believed by faith in the word of God. Noah was a man who proclaimed the coming judgment. Noah did all he could to prepare the people of his generation for the coming storm. This, in a nutshell, was the experience of Noah. And this is what God is calling you and I to today. For Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. God is calling us. He's calling you, my friend, to join him in being an ambassador 
filled with the Holy Spirit, sharing this message of hope and love with people, preparing them for the soon return of Jesus. Sadly, there were only eight individuals that were saved. Eight out of, we don't know how many, but I'm assuming there were millions of people at the very least at that time in history after, 15, after more than 1,500 years of history and people living for almost 1,000 years. You can imagine how many children you can have, ladies, in 1,000 years. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to imagine that. Maybe you don't want to imagine how many children you could have. <clears throat> but notice what the author again, Alan White, has to say about Noah's faithfulness. Although only his family was saved. Noah's warnings had been rejected by the world, but his influence and example resulted in blessing, in blessings to his family. As a reward for his faithfulness and integrity, God saved all the members of his family with him. What encouragement to parental fidelity. What encouragement to parental fidelity. That word fidelity, in case you're wondering, it means allegiance. It means loyalty. It means devotion. It means faithfulness. What an example to parental faithfulness. I've got a picture up here of my mother, my dear mother, who, who now rests awaiting the sound of the trumpet. And here is a picture of my mother um, when we came to Australia back in um, 1970, I think it was, 1971. Actually, no, early 1971 is when my mum and dad came from Macedonia to Australia and I was born six months later. So my mum was three months pregnant when she made that journey uh, from Macedonia to Australia. And here, th th this, is a, this is one of my favourite pictures with my mum. And there in the background is the church, uh, the Seddon Church there in, in, um, in Melbourne, inner Melbourne. And there is my mum with the bottle in her hand and she's teaching me to do what? She's teaching me to pray and to thank God for where that milk came from. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It came from the creator God who loves me and who made this milk for me so that I could grow. My mother was a great blessing in my life, the greatest blessing in my life. Although I wandered away from God, although I wandered through the land of Nod, the land of wanderings, but because of my mother's influence, because of my mother's fidelity, I stand here before you today experiencing the grace of God and the privilege of being an ambassador for God to share the message of his grace with those around me. So parents, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If your children are wandering in the land of Nod, don't give up. Keep praying. Keep being an example that one day, like my mother's prodigal son, that your children too will come back to the Lord and be ready for the soon return of Jesus. Keep praying. Be faithful. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying and be an example. And I believe God will answer your prayers. Today, God is inviting us to choose to be part of his end time, Noah generation. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, God says to Noah, 
Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Come, come. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will do what? I will give you rest. And the final invitation in all of scripture by God is in Revelation 22, verse 17. The final invitation and notice the final invitation of God and the spirit and the bride say what? Come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life. What? Freely. Come, come, come. God is inviting you to come. There is only one way to be saved at the end of time. There is only one ark. There was only one ark four and a half thousand years ago. And there is only one ark today. And that ark is Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. That ark is Jesus Christ. There is salvation alone in Jesus Christ. He's inviting you today to come, come, come. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all of heaven say, come, come, come. So wherever you are in your journey, it matters not. God is inviting you to give your heart and life to him. Jesus is coming soon. He really is coming soon. I believe that with all my heart. And as we continue to unpack the story of Noah, you'll discover how close indeed we are to the coming of Jesus. He wants you to be ready. He wants all of us to be ready. And he wants us to be his ambassadors filled with his Holy Spirit to prepare others for the soon return of Jesus. Won't you come? Won't you come? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the blessings of Jesus. We want to thank you so much that Jesus gave us words of encouragement that he said that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be before I come. If there was grace to be found in the days of Noah, there will be grace to be found in the days before I come. Father, today we come. We don't deserve grace, but we come asking and pleading for it because of your great love and mercy. We pray that you will bless us and fill us with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen and Amen and Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milankov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.